That's right, motherfuckers. I'm part of the Feral Audio family of podcasts, along with Duncan Trussell. I think Dan Harmon's podcast is in the mix there. There are a whole bunch of them. It keeps expanding. It's an ever-expanding family. It's like fucking Mormons or something. Anyway, uh, I join you today from sunny, dry, dusty, angry, aggressive, fucked-up Los Angeles. Um, I'm just down here for a few days to see some friends, check in with my parents, um, and basically... Oh, I'm going to have a tour of the SpaceX facility today, which should be pretty fucking cool. Um, A really nice guy who listens to the podcast and works there uh, has invited me in for a tour. So I'll be doing that in a couple of hours. But in the meantime, I thought I'd uh, get this, this podcast out to the world. I know you're all standing by, waiting. Can't do anything till you get your tangentially speaking, right? Uh, that's a fantasy, I know. In any case, uh, I wanted to get this out um, so I don't, so I can move on to other stuff the rest of the week. I'm getting into the writing now. You'll be happy to hear those of you who have been sending me emails saying, "Write the fucking book, dude. Stop fucking around." Very interesting to be in this position. It's it's a very uh, privileged position, and I'm grateful to have readers who give enough of a shit about what I'm doing to actually. Um, chastise me for not doing it faster. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. As long as you people sending me these emails are going to actually buy a damn book when I write it, not download it illegally the way I probably would have when I was in your shoes. Um, but anyway, uh, I appreciate the the input and the encouragement, even if it comes wrapped in acrimony. Speaking of acrimony, I've been thinking just on my way up to get a coffee at uh, the coffee bean and tea leaf today. uh, I was thinking about structural violence. People don't appreciate, I think, the importance of structural violence or even really understand what it is. So I think about it every time I'm in L.A. because, you know, L.A.'s got good people, just like any town. There are good people and bad people everywhere. Mostly good people, I would say. Uh, and the bad people are just good people who've been fucked up by bad situations and, and you know, other bad people, and it cascades down the generations. But um, in any case, every time I come to L.A., I, I feel aggressive. I feel I'm pissed off a lot because I'm driving, and people drive like assholes here. They don't give any space. And if you're accustomed to giving space, as I am, I'm a safe fucking driver. I was on a motorcycle for seven years. So I'm like not under any illusions about the vulnerability of being on a road. I've also totaled a car. I drove a car through a fucking bridge into a stream when I was 16 years old and felt the life-saving grip of the seatbelt on me and you know and I I felt there was a moment where it was like there was no question if that seatbelt weren't latched over me and holding strong I would have gone right through the windshield Um, you've had the feeling if you've ever been on a roller coaster or something where there's a moment where you just go whoa and you could feel your body would just fly right the hell out of there um if not for the the protection. So I've had those experiences and, and I know 
how vulnerable you are in a car, even if you think you're not. Um, but in, in Los Angeles, people are just so fucking aggressive. There's a culture of, you know, take, take, if there's a space, I'm going to take it. I'm going to pull over in front of you. If you're leaving, you know, some empty space between you and the car in front of you, fuck you. I'm pulling in there. I'm not even going to signal. I'm not going to wave to thank you. If you let me in, I'm just going to take it. I'm going to, you know, and if I'm trying to pull into the traffic and there's a little space, I'm just going to pull right out and fuck you, slow down, get out of my way. That's the attitude in LA. So of course you get this, this vibe like, man, people are assholes here and they are, but they're also not because it's structural violence. The city is set up to virtually require that kind of attitude, that kind of approach. And that's what I mean by structural violence. Uh, a really good example of it is when you're on an airplane. And, okay, it sucks to be on an airplane, right? Everybody hates it. But you're on an airplane, and then there's a kid screaming, and there's, you know, the guy next to you stinks, and... They're, they're, you know, everything's just all fucked up and the people with too much carry on bags and it's all this bullshit. Right. So you're in a certain kind of frame of mind just because you're on the airplane, even if it started as a good day. Now it's starting to get pretty bad. And then the asshole in front of you reclines his seat back, you know, practically f breaks your fucking computer, your coffee spills. OK, so I said it, the asshole in front of you. Now, is that guy really an asshole? Could be, but probably not. The fact is, what makes him seem an asshole to you is that you're sitting on a fucking airplane. It's the airplane designer that's the asshole. It's the agenda of the company that's trying to pack as many people as possible into as small a space as possible and charge you as much as possible. That's the source of the nastiness and the assholery. Not the guy who just leaned back because the guy in front of him just leaned back. So now he doesn't have any space. So he's leaning back to try to get some space for himself. And that fucks you up. And now you're pissed at him. You see what I'm saying? It's structural violence. And you end up, you know, kneeing that guy in the back because you're blaming him for it. Which is natural. It's what happens when little animals like us, little monkeys like us get in a badly designed cage. Another example that's very prominent in the news right now is what's going on in the Middle East, the Palestinians and the Israelis. We could also talk about Africa. We could talk about Iraq. We can talk about virtually pretty much any war I can think of in the last 40 years or so has been caused by intentionally fucked up decisions mainly by the British when they were um, when they had the, their colonies around the world. You see what they did, if you're not familiar with this technique is they established borders in places that were never considered countries you know, we're talking about African countries, Nigeria, Kenya Congo, all that in the case of Congo, of course, it was Belgium, but it doesn't matter. The colonialists all use the same techniques. What they do is they establish the borders in such a way that you've got several different tribes within the same country. Now, 
it seems like, well, it would make sense to just establish the country around each tribe, right? You got the Zulu nation here, you got the, this nation here, the, the Tutsis here, the Hutu here, et cetera, et cetera, right? But no, they didn't do it that way. And the reason they didn't do it that way is that that would be a much harder space to control because the people you're trying to control are unified. They all speak the same language. They've got a political structure. They've got a history of militarism. So they can kick your ass or at least cause a lot of fucking problems for you. So instead what you do is you establish the national borders in such a way that it mixes a bunch of different tribes together. That way you can keep the tribes fighting each other, which weakens them, creates confusion and chaos, and makes it much more difficult for anyone to unify against the colonial occupiers. You see what I'm saying? So a country like Iraq that's got Sunnis and Shiites all mixed together, that's fucking intentional. And Kurds, by the way. That's intentional. That's something that the, the British are doing. Now, I may be wrong on the details here of Iraq. I'm not a Middle Eastern, uh, an expert on Middle East history. But if you look at Africa, you look at um, uh, the Middle East, most of these countries were established intentionally fucked up, intentionally with warring groups within them that hate one another as a way for the colonial power, the British, the Americans, the Belgian, the French, whomever it was, to control them more easily by creating all this discord. You see, this isn't an accident of history. This was an intentional historical technique uh, and a historical colonial technique for controlling people. You mix them in with other people that they fucking hate, or you can at least make them hate them. So that's what's going on. These are, it's like throwing a couple of, uh, you know, cocks into a ring. It's like throwing monkeys into a cage that's poorly designed. So colonial powers set these people up in, in a, a structurally aggressive situation, give them reason to hate each other, sow the seeds of discord, and then report back, oh, these fucking, you know, Middle East people, they, they don't know how to live in peace. Or these Africans, they never stop fighting. This kind of thing extends everywhere. Uh, we talk about it in Sex at Dawn, where uh, uh, Napoleon Chagnon, the famous anthropologist, goes down to the Yanomami people in, in Venezuela People at the point he went down in the late 60s had very little had had very little contact with the outside world. He waltzes in there, starts handing out uh, machetes and uh, shotguns. And then it's complicated. But basically what he does is he he goes from village to village asking the names of dead people. And because in this society, you never say the name of a dead person. It's it's a very strong taboo they won't tell him but he's trying to get this genealogical information so he comes up with this great idea of saying well the guys over in that village told me that your grandfather who's dead was named blah 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 and and the guy and and he makes up names and he can see by the person's reaction whether he happened to luck into the right name the person freaks out like oh my god how dare they do that 
And then he goes, and then they're like, well, okay, fuck those guys. If they said the name of our ancestors, I'm going to say the name of his ancestor. So then he gives them the information about the other people, tricked them into doing it, right? This anthropologist. Breaking the greatest taboos in the society after he's armed them, gave some of them machetes, others didn't. So some are resentful, and how come you got machetes and we don't? And then all this war breaks out, and what's he do? He writes a book claiming, what's he call it, the fierce people, claiming that these are the terrible warlike people and, you know, uh, telling all these fucking stories about how horrible they were. That's Napoleon Chagnon. That's the best-selling book in the history of anthropology. It's bullshit. Here's another example. A guy named uh, Zuckerman. He was the, the president of the London Zoological Society from 1977 to 84, a pioneer in the study of primates. Um, he uh, wrote a couple of books, The Social Life of Monkeys and Apes, which was published in 31. That was way back. But then later he wrote uh, Scientists in War in 66 and two autobiographical volumes, one called From Apes to Warlords <clears throat> and the other Monkeys, Men, and Missiles. All right? So I think you're starting to get a sense of what this guy was interested in. Violence, primates, and determining the primate origins of human violence, right? So what's he do? He's, he set up a group of baboons in the London Zoo, okay? Uh, these are Hamadrias baboons. Now, Hamadrias baboons mate in a harem system. So there's a male that controls multiple females and dominates their mating behavior. Same thing with gorillas, for example, right? So normally what you'd want to do is you would have just a few males and a whole bunch of females in a colony like this uh, so that it would be stable and replicate the normal behavior of baboons. But what Zuckerman did was exactly the opposite. He put a whole bunch of males together and then introduced just a few females, so what happened? The males start fighting like mad over these females in order to build their own harem, which led to a massacre, right? So Zuckerman comes into work, finds all these dead monkeys, and he concludes that this is how nature works, including human nature. You understand? He set it up in the wrong way. He set up this artificial community in a way that goes directly against the natural behavior of these baboons. And then he assumed that their response to this was an expression of their nature. And he expanded from the chaos that he'd created to conclude that this is just how human and non-human primates behave under natural conditions. Now, this is something I'm writing about quite a bit in Civilized to Death. And it's one of the reasons that one of several reasons that I think Steven Pinker is completely full of shit because Steven Pinker doesn't understand this or he pretends he doesn't understand how violence can be baked into the loaf. Violence is created by the social structures that we develop and that we impose upon other people. And it's complete bullshit to set up a system that generates violence and then report back that the participants in this system are the source of that violence. 
When you're in a bad mood on a fucking overcrowded airplane sitting in coach, that's not your fault. That's the fault of the environment that we've created. Same thing with the whole noble savage bullshit. I'm going to get a lot of shit in this book. And so I'm, I'm sort of being defensive and preempting a lot of the criticisms because what I'm saying is, yeah, hunter gatherers do have nobler sentiments. They treat each other with greater respect, with more kindness, with more generosity. This is reported by virtually every first contact participant in the history of of colonialism, from Columbus to Captain Cook to whomever you want to read. I challenge you to find an example that doesn't say the native people were incredibly kind and generous and offered us anything that we expressed any admiration for, etc., etc., now, it's not that they are innately better people. It's that they live in a social system that encourages and cultivates what we would call these noble sentiments. And the Europeans lived in a situation in societies that discourage and squelch out these noble sentiments. Just like people in Portland are fucking cool, man. They're nice. You go in, you know, you go to the grocery store in Portland and the odds are really good that whoever's checking you out at the, you know, the checkout line is going to be a nice person. They're going to be intelligent, nice, kind, generous, have a good vibe going on about them. L.A., you run into somebody, chances are they're going to be a fucking dick. And it's not because people born or who move to L.A. are innately worse people, except for the people who are trying to get rich and famous. They're worse people. But Someone who just happens to live in L.A., there's nothing wrong with them except the fact that they live in fucking L.A. Structural violence. This episode of Tangentially Speaking is brought to you by Sure Design T-Shirts. Check them out, suredesigntshirts.com. And I always forget to mention this because I'm just shitty at this sort of thing. Uh, there is a discount code. I think it's 10% off your order, complete total order. And the discount code is sex at dawn altogether. One word, sex at dawn. So it's good if you use that code because then Bennett knows that the sales came from me and all these t-shirts he's sending me at uh, discounted prices are not a complete waste of his time and money. By the way, I'm sitting in my parents' garage uh, surrounded by boxes of sure design t-shirts so come and order some of these damn things the the civilized to death shirts are flying off the shelves we can't keep them in stock but we've also got wonderful tangentially speaking shirts with that funky ralph stedman design very cool design we've got hoodies we've got um, tank tops we've got all sorts of stuff we've got the sure design t-shirts and then we've got paleo modern shirts which are really cool because they're kind of subtle just says paleo modern and a and a clean text. Great conversation starter. Come on, who's going to see a shirt that says Paleo Modern and not wonder what the hell that means? So, great way to meet chicks or dudes. Wear your sexy Paleo Modern shirt and just wait for the questions to come in. And, of course, we've got the, the classic Sex at Dawn shirts with that funky mandala kind of look on it. 
And there's an, oh, and the Civilized to Death shirts. Yeah, we're starting to run out of the men's large and mediums. But we've got lots of other ones there. Hoodies and tank tops and all these different designs. So you can find those on chrisryanphd.com. Go to the store. You'll see all the stuff there. Uh, what else? The, uh, the other uh, sponsors are My Package, the very cool underwear company. Uh, I sent a few pairs to my buddy in Amsterdam. And he, he sent me a picture of himself wearing a pair. He loves them. He's a, he's a bit of a, Martin's a bit of an underwear aficionado. Um, I used to, when I flew to the States, he always asked me to buy him some Calvin Klein underwear. So I was always coming back with Calvin Klein for him because it's a lot cheaper in the States than in, in Europe. So when I saw this My Package stuff, I sent him a few pairs and he's a big fan now. Um, yeah, check it out. My package, M Y P A K A G E. Uh, if you, um, I think there's a discount code for that too. I think it's sex S E X. <clears throat> and if you, um, they're giving away free pairs. So I think it's like every, the, the first 10 people who order after this podcast goes up, um, get a free pair. So check them out. My package, if you've got, uh, Underwear issues, if you're not completely comfortable with your underwear, check them out. These, I mean, this is high-end shit. It ain't cheap. I got to say that. Um, But, you know, if you're the kind of person who buys a Mercedes because you know that over, or a BMW, you know that over the time that you own the car, it'll end up probably being cheaper than if you bought a used piece of shit because you pay more up front, but it's better quality. If you're that kind of person, consider this a BMW for your balls. I'm telling you, I should have gone into advertising a BMW for your balls. Come on. How beautiful is that? We're also sponsored this week by Ting. Yes, you've heard me talk about Ting before. They're pretty cool cell phone service that charges you for what you use. Imagine that. They don't try to rip you off for a bunch of shit you don't use. Packages and all that stuff. Uh, they're fantastic and they're especially nice if you ever travel outside of the country or for some reason you're not using your cell phone for a month or two, doesn't matter, six bucks, that's all you pay, that's the minimum. It's not one of these 50, 60 buck, you know, every month, no matter what you do kind of deals. So if you get hit by a truck, you're in the hospital for six months, you're in a coma, you can't turn off your goddamn cell package, don't worry. One less thing to worry about. Six bucks a month as long as you're in your coma. So, and, and no one else uses your phone, of course. So, hey, you know, nobody plans to get hit by a truck and go into a coma. It happens. So why not be prepared by using Ting? Again, this this advertising talent of mine is just coming out. It's amazing. Um, anyway, the average monthly uh, user would be uh, paying about 21 bucks. They've got a thing on their on their website where you can plug in your normal usage and they'll tell you what your bill would be with them. So what you do is go to sexatdon.ting.com. And uh, once you go there, that's where you can uh, do a simulation of your usage, see what your bill would be. If you like it, uh, check them out. There's no minimum. There's no contract. There's no bullshit. Twenty. They'll even give you 25% um, to help you get out of your current contract. So if you're stuck in a relationship uh, that you don't like with your cell phone company, they'll help you get out of it. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? It's like if you're in a shitty marriage and you meet somebody and they're a great lover and they're also rich and they'll like pay your lawyer to get divorced. 
I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't trust that person, honestly, probably. But with a cell phone company, I'll take the money. Sure. Why not? Help me get out of this shitty relationship I'm in. I think that's it for the sponsorship stuff. Uh, I'm probably forgetting something. I always forget something, but there's always next week. This episode is the third episode with Dr. Stanley Krippner, who is an amazing guy. Uh, there's There are no words to talk about how interesting he is as a human being, how fascinating his life has been, and how consequential he's been in my life. Um, maybe someday I'll do an episode talking about some of the stuff Stanley and I have done together and, and how much he's helped me uh, along my path. But he is my uh, my godfather in, in many ways. He's the grandfather I never had. Although I, I said that to him once, like, you know, that, you know, I think of you as my grandfather, I think we were probably tripping at the time. And I saw a look go over his face, which I think said, um, I'm not old enough to be your grandfather. <laughs> so you gotta be careful when you, you try to express affection, uh, by, you know, in age related ways. But, uh, Stanley's a wonderful man, and um, uh, in this conversation, I um, I got more personal with him. In, in previous conversations I've had with him on the podcast, we've talked more about his research and some of the amazing people he's known. Seriously, name anyone who was really interesting in the last 40 years, and Stanley knew them. It's just incredible, from David Byrne of The Talking Heads to The Grateful Dead to actors and intellectuals. I mean, he knew uh, Colonel Sanders, for crying out loud, the the guy you see at the KFC signs, you know. His, Colonel Sanders' daughter funded some research into telepathy and stuff that Stanley was doing. Anyway, just incredible guy. And in this podcast, I tried to get more, more personal. We talked more about his his um his personal experiences as opposed to the research and people he's known um he's a very special man and i really appreciate him opening himself up uh to me and and to you uh by extension so i hope you really enjoy this episode it's a very special one for me and uh we'll see you next week thanks for listening baby what's the big deal feel what you want to feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Think about your reputation Try to meet an expectation Alright, let's do a little sound check there, Stanley Sure you want to say something? Testing, one, two, three, four. Testing, one, two, three, four. All right. That's pretty good. How old are you? I always forget. 81. 81. 81. Yeah, you were at my 80th birthday party. And I was at your 75th and birthday you, party and your 70th, and that's 70th. I think. Yeah, it was after the 70th birthday party we went to India. Ah, and that, that was the one in New York, right? Yes. And we were... Actually leaving? What was going on? Because I remember I had some problem with my visa. So you I, did. Yeah, I think you and I 
arrive separately or yeah, something. Yeah, because of your visa problem, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember some panic in Madrid uh, trying to get scary. that. That was scary. Yeah, well, visa problems. It wasn't as bad as last year. B.J. Carrick, who you might or might not remember from Saybrook, he was the business manager for a few years. We've been planning this trip to Brazil for t- 10 years, and he got to the airport. He didn't have a visa. Uh, I had forgot to he... tell him he needed a visa. Oh, boy. I've I've taken half a dozen other friends to Brazil, and I didn't tell any of them they needed a visa. They just figured it out themselves. <laughs> and he, it was a non-refundable ticket. I just uh, felt terrible about it. So, and there's no way. There's no last-minute thing you can do no, at the airport. No, there wasn't. But, yeah, uh, yeah. That was one of the great disappointments of last year. And now I don't know when I will be going again, but and I hope that he'll be able to get the time off. He and his girlfriend have a kid, so now that's complicating things. Mm, yeah, kids will do that. Oh, God. So, anyway, back to the topic at hand. <laughs> Whatever that is. We haven't decided yet. I, uh, I did a very lengthy interview yesterday at Saybrook. Oh, yeah? Yes. For what? Um well, you never knew Henry Dakin. He was a close friend of mine who died a few years ago, and his widow is pulling together a whole series of uh, of um, reminiscences. So I was videotaped as well as audio taped, mm. and now I have to write up a little eulogy for him, which I'll be happy to do when I have time. So uh, I was uh, almost unable to speak by the end of that interview. Mm. Because I'm not used to speaking on and on and on, except at RCs for Saybrook. Tonight I have a talk in San Rafael, Uh first uh, talk for the Institute of Nordic Sciences in San Rafael. Great. And so I'm taking some books along, which I might or might not sell, and uh, the high school student who's doing part-time work for me is coming along to sell books, and... Um, that will be long after you are on your way. They're picking me up, I think, at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock, okay. So that's why I'm glad you arrived early. We'll have plenty of time for the interview and to get a bite to eat and socialize over dinner. Well, we can keep this as light as you want. I know you've, you're tired from yesterday and you have your oh, thing no, tonight. I, so I want to suit you. you. You do whatever you want. You just let us know. And when, I will, yeah. yes. So, uh, you know, the best thing about doing a podcast probably is the excuse it gives me to sit down with people and have sort of fo- focused conversations. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you remember you and I... Um, have traveled all over the world, and normally I'm either carrying suitcases or driving. And mm-hmm. uh, we, you and I, have had so many great conversations, and I got so frustrated, uh, you know, just feeling all this information and insight evaporating into the air, and I was the only one there to hear it. You know, five continents, every inhabited continent but Australia. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Have you been? Well, you've been to Australia yourself, yes, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. Have you ever tallied up how many countries you've yes. been to? 101. 101 countries? Yes. <laughs> Seriously? Wow. Some of which are no longer in existence, of course. Like which? Well, Soviet Union, of course. Uh, what else? The former Yugoslavia. Uh-huh. You were there with when Tito was still in power. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I guess you had to be if it was Yugoslavia. Yes, I'm a great admirer of Tito. 
because he was able to hold that country together despite its various ethnicities. And when he was on his deathbed, a reporter asked him, what will happen when you die? And he said, chaos. And he was right. Right. Well, Saddam Hussein could have said the same thing, you know, probably did. Years ago, I said, Iraq is better under Saddam Hussein then it will be without him. Bad though he is, sometimes you have to choose the better of the two, e- the, wor- the better of the two evils. Yeah. That was right. On our drive down here, Cassie and I were listening to uh, a podcast called Hardcore History. Uh, it's a guy named Dan Carlin who is, uh, I guess he's an amateur historian, which means he doesn't have a PhD in history, I suppose. Um, but he's very, very knowledgeable, and he tells. The stories with great detail and and he has a good sense for narrative. So it's exciting. We've been listening to the Mongols, Genghis Khan and that whole thing. And and we've listened to three of the four and each one's about two hours long. So you can imagine the detail it goes into. Mm -hmm. Um, But he makes this point uh, very strongly that. You know, there's a lot of revisionist history now. Uh, of course, history is always revisionist, right? Yes. But um, sort of saying, well, you know, the Mongols weren't that bad. Uh, you know, they brought civilization. They, you know, they, they did all these good things by um, being um, creatively destructive. So they wiped out all these stagnant, fractured societies and brought them under one ruler and organized and instituted laws and, you Mm -hmm. know, sort of a globalization argument, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, but they also killed probably 70 or 80 million people. And he goes into detail of how they would just go in and, you know, they they tell people in, in a city, uh, you know, we'll let you live if you surrender. And then they'd surrender and they'd behead everybody, every, children, chickens, dogs, cats, everybody, you know. And he's, his point is that uh, it's only distance that allows us to look at the good side of someone like Genghis Khan. And what he said was, look, if the Germans had won World War Two. A hundred years from now, the, you know, and Germans ruling Europe would have said, well, look what we did. We unified Europe. We stopped the, you know, the constant warfare. We, you know, all this great stuff happened. Hitler was George Washington. We kept communism from taking over. Exactly. We stopped the, the dirty communists. So I mean, he makes a very good point, and he's pretty ballsy, I think, to bring up the Nazis and say, it you was. know, mm-hmm. look, if you're going to talk about the good side of Genghis Khan, you might as well talk about the good side of Saddam Hussein, <laughs> the good side mm-hmm. of of Hitler, and meanwhile, the bad side of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and the rest of them. You know, it's it's all very dependent on how you're looking at things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so do you do you have a sense uh, just because this is in my head and and you're you're one of probably the most knowledgeable person I know and your perspective is informed by 81 years. Do you have a sense of the trajectory of history? How do you feel at this moment in time in 2014? Where the hell are we going? Do you have a sense of that? Well, first of all, I don't think that history has a predetermined trajectory. I don't think that it is really self-organizing. I think that to some extent the so-called great man theory of history 
is correct, but it only goes so far. I think it's the times that create the great leaders rather than great leaders creating the times. Mm. And so I really have trouble with simplistic explanations of history. Right now, of course, there is a battle going on over Steven Pinker's assertion that the world has become less violent in the last couple of hundred years, and there are actually fewer wars and less violence. And his detractors make, I think, an equally convincing argument that that is not so, that when you look at the past hundred years, more civilians have been killed in wars than soldiers, than combatants have been killed in wars. And that certainly is true in the last couple of wars that we have been privy to. So I think that history just keeps on going. It's multi-causal and... I think that if I were to identify something where there is some sort of progress, it would be science and technology, mm. which has its shadow side, of course. But I think we are finding out more about nature and we're finding out more about how to create the tools to give people a better lifestyle. Now what we need to do is to create the ambiance to implement that. Do you think, haven't we had the tools to give people a better lifestyle for a long time? I mean, we've had surplus food for decades, right? I mean, yes. since, since after World War II and mechanized farming and all that stuff. And yet people are still starving to death. And um, I guess what I'm, I guess I, I'm curious about the shadow side of technology, because I feel like, yes, there is um, progress, and I'm doing the air quotes with the yes. progress, because it, we're still the same organism. We're still the same ignorant monkey and we just have stronger and stronger tools you know it's like it's like giving kids firecrackers and then pistols and then machine guns and then bombs but they're still kids so i kind of feel like the more technological progress there is the the greater the chasm between our moral development and capacities and the power of the technology. So the technological development in the end, from this perspective, is actually a negative. Because we're capable of doing more and more damage. Not only are we capable of doing more and more damage against ourselves. We're doing more and more damage against nature. Right. And I think that... It's the destruction of the natural environment that will do us in more efficiently than warfare and human versus human violence. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I meant by the shadow side. Exactly. Right. We have two forces that are working against implementing the technological advances, one being the shadow side of human nature, 
with all of the destruction that's going on, not only the destruction, but also the prejudice against any type of family planning or birth control. What, what do you make of that? Where does that come from? I'm confused by the, the rights, the, the, well, even using terms like right and left, but the conservative sort of fundamentalist American opposition to birth control an abortion at the same time that they're vehemently, most of them, in favor of capital punishment yes. and against any sort of, um, you know, welfare and child support and support for unwed mothers and, and the rest of it. There seems to be a disconnect there that I is it just Old Testament Echoes of the Old Testament and controlling women's bodies, do you think? Because on the one side, they're saying you must have the baby. On the other side, they're saying, but once you do, we'll throw it in prison. We'll execute it. We, we won't do a damn thing to help you raise it properly. You're on your own. It, how is it that your uterus is our business until you have the baby and then we don't want to hear another word from you? I don't get that. Well, there is a disconnect, of course. I think that... If you look at the statistics in the United States, and again, there will be an opposition to what I'm going to say in other explanations, but the states that have easiest access to abortion are the states with the lowest crime rate. Yeah. And the... opposition to abortion and the dyed-in-the-wool religious conservatives, I think, are being very upset by the changes going on in the world, especially the cultural changes, and they have to hang on to something. And when you're adrift in an ocean and you have a life raft, you hang on to it for dear life. <laughs> and you don't let it out of your hands. So their their life raft is made of uh, floating fetuses. <laughs> you might say so. <laughs> There's even a move now to not only to accord the embryo personage, yeah, but that. the egg, the egg even itself, for fertilization personage. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But some state legislators are taking this. Uh, seriously. Well, that brings us into this sort of vehement anti-intellectualism of American society. And uh, who was it? Was it Galbraith who wrote the the book about, um, I forget what it was called. It was American anti-intellectualism or something along those lines mm -hmm. in the 40s or 50s. It's sort of a seminal uh, historical text. Um, so this has been going on for a long time, but they, they do seem to have taken over at this point. Uh, certainly in Congress, anyway, and and at the state level in many states, is that that that's not historically unprecedented, is it? I mean, idiots have always found themselves found a way to get into power or had power thrust upon them. The idiot sons of various medieval kings and so forth. So I guess I guess I shouldn't despair at the fact that the the fools are running the. No, it's been going on for hundreds of years. Just uh, take a look at the way that the Spanish moved into Mexico and destroyed these wonderful historical codices that the Mayans had yeah. handwritten, 
historical material that uh, is forever lost. We'll never be able to retrieve that. They did a very good job of burning it because if it was not biblical, if it was not sanctioned by their own priests, it wasn't worthwhile. Yeah. One thing I learned about Genghis Khan is that he was tolerant of other religions. Well, there you are. That's yeah. something in his favor, I right, guess. Right, right. But only only because he then used that tolerance as a way to turn Muslims against Christians and, you know, various sects against one another by saying, hey, you know, I, I accept all of you. you you're, the Christians are the ones who don't accept, you know, the, mm-hmm. the legitimacy of your religion. And so he used that. He's very, very good uh, strategist. Old Genghis, or Genghis, as, as the guy says. Oh, well, he was. He actually had the largest empire in the history of the world. Yeah, and the the largest genetic legacy. About 5% of all Asian men are directly related yeah. to him. So that is a lot of fucking old Genghis. You bet. Yeah, mm-hmm. which... He was sort of the the Bill Clinton of his day, you know. Oh, good heavens, no, that, no comparison. I'm <laughs> well, I sorry. mean, in terms of appetite, you know, not that Bill Clinton was a great military strategist or anything, but you know, I'm sure if, if Bill could have had a harem of ten thousand women waiting for him, he probably would have gone. Maybe for the it. Hugh Hefner of his day. I think Hugh Hefner is a bit of a fraud. Actually, I'm very disappointed in Hugh Hefner. Do you ever did you admire him like back in the 60s when he was, you know, breaking the mold and daring to do these revolutionary things with Playboy? Was he somebody you looked up to? No, he was never exactly a hero of mine, but I do give him credit for his role in bringing about sexual liberation. Yeah. And I admire the money he has put into marijuana decriminalization. Mm, I didn't know he was working with that. Oh, oh yes. He has been the chief funder of the marijuana uh, legalization project, MMP, of which I am a member. And years ago, when I had more money than I did now, I actually bought four tickets for a uh, fundraiser at the Playboy Mansion. And I took three friends with me, and we had an incredible time. I think that Adam Fish is the only one of the four who you know personally. And we had a tour of the Playboy Mansion. Mm. We had, oh, David Sessions. Oh, right, yeah. Just a minute. No, 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 it wasn't David Sessions. Pardon me, because David Sessions is Alcoholics Anonymous. He has to stay away from drugs. Um, It was some friend of mine who had a nice nice relationship with the Playboy buddy, Bunny, who showed us around, and actually kept in touch with her by email for almost a year. Hmm. Um, it's a tough place to meet a woman. Yes, yeah. right. But once we got to the uh, cave, the grotto, we had a chance to go swimming in the nude. <laughs> and I was the only one who agreed to go in the nude. <laughs> All of my friends were much better looking and much younger than I was, and they chickened out. <laughs> So I can say that I've been swimming nude in the Playboy Grotto. Nice. And you didn't catch anything? 
I, I've heard I did, of certainly catching didn't catch things. any disease. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. You, and Hugh Hefner did make a brief appearance from his balcony, uh-huh. and uh, so I did get a distant photograph of him. Cheech and Chong were there. They auctioned off a number of pieces of art. It was a very, very successful fundraiser. Well, see, there's someone, uh, Chong. Chong's the the tall white guy, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He went to prison to keep his yes. son out, to help yes. his son. I, that, there's a guy you know I really admire. Getting back to Hugh Hefner, I just feel like he's undercut his legacy by playing up this creepy old man thing that he's doing, you know, like marrying the twins and, you know, like all the Viagra and all this, mm-hmm. you know, if it, you do whatever he wants, but be discreet about it, you know, exactly. I mean, come on guy. Yeah. I mean, it, it's because the whole playboy gentleman thing was about class and discretion, it was, right? you know, and now he's just playing into the hands of people who would piss all over that. Yeah, you mentioned marijuana. Do you remember the first time you tried marijuana? Yes, it was the party for Timothy Leary. Oh, what a great in place Greenwich to Village. try for I, Timothy first, Leary. I was very much opposed to marijuana until I started to visit Timothy Leary at his uh, digs in Cambridge, Massachusetts, after he'd been fired from Harvard, and there were two students from MIT who came in and were telling Tim how they had gotten some of the same effects from marijuana as they had gotten from LSD. And I think that was a historic night because he had never heard that before, claimed he had never heard it before, and they gave him a... uh, sales talk on marijuana and told him that he should investigate it. And then, less than a year later, I was invited to a party in Greenwich Village, and he was there, and somebody pulled out the marijuana, and that's when I had my first uh, toke of of marijuana. By that time, Tim was an enthusiastic uh, user. Mm. And did you feel any effects? You don't generally feel an effect the first time, yeah. and I don't remember any special effect that I got. And I've never been an avid marijuana smoker. When I smoke it, it's always with friends, it's with people, so I do it more for the social reasons, but also for, for political reasons, expressing solidarity with users of something that never should have been criminalized in the first place. Yeah. I've never once bought any marijuana. If somebody wants to buy it and invite me to partake of it, that's fine, but uh, <laughs> uh, they have to put up the money for it. <laughs> well, I remember you and I uh, sharing a joint one time in Spain before we went into the Dali Museum. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and you were... You smoked the joint in a way that really confused me. And I know we had smoked together previously, um, but we must have been smoking pipes or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because with with the the joint, you sort of for, you you formed a a shape with your palms, and the joint went through your fingers, and the palms of your hands went over your face, and you smoked it that way. And I remember saying to you, "Why?" Why are you smoking like that? And you said, well, I don't know. I've always smoked that way. Yeah, that's typically the way I smoke. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then later, I, I, I don't remember if we were together or not, but I realized that probably, when was this when you were at the party with Timothy Leary and you tried it the first time? Late 1960s. Late 60s. So there's a, in those days, because I remember when I first started smoking in the late 70s, there were still a lot of seeds in the in the grass and if a seed burned it exploded mm-hmm. and it could get in your eyes and so you were protecting your face from exploding seeds you are right that's exactly why yeah. i did it that way even though there are no seeds anymore no but back then there progress were, yes there you are <laughs> there's some progress progress i was protecting my face from the seeds because i'd had experience with exploding seeds yeah yeah So now all these years later, you and I both know why I uh, smoke marijuana with uh, protect (laughs) protect my face. Like a welder's welder's mask. Anyway, to get... All right, in terms terms of history, that's one encouraging thing we're seeing in the United States. In the United States, it comes decades too late, but money is being saved by not putting people in jail for smoking marijuana. And... That's something that cannot be stopped. I think that the role of history now is on the side of decriminalization, and the results from Washington and Colorado indicate no big rise in teenage drug use as a result, like the opponents were predicting to take place. And... um, Money, more money available for worthwhile things rather than prosecuting um, and jailing marijuana users. And also, uh, it's, um, it's providing employment for people. So yeah. there are jobs being made. And the opponents are saying, yes, but um, criminals are breaking into the marijuana dispensaries and stealing the marijuana. Well, there's a downside to everything, and what you need is better police protection of the dispensaries. And banking. I mean, the banks are refusing to to uh, accept the money, so people are keeping all the money in their safes. In the safe. So, of course, yeah, people are going to break in. Right. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like, like so often, if you look at the, the actual problem, you see it's bad government policy that creates the problem. You know, like heroin overdoses. People overdose on heroin because it's illegal, so yes. nobody can test to see how pure it is. So you you get a bag of white powder. You don't know that it's twice as strong as the last mm-hmm. bag of white powder. There's no way to know. It's uh, it's a very strange, strange world. So do you think that uh, all drugs should be legal or just marijuana? Well, I like the Spanish system. I think that there should be, shall we say, a legal outlet for virtually all drugs. Mm. Carefully monitored, but done so in a way that um, pulls the rug out from under criminal elements controlling the drug trade. So you're thinking of the Portuguese system, I think. The The Portuguese system, pardon me, yes. The Spanish system is chaotic and crazy and... You know, not as bad as the American, but not not. Pardon me. I yeah, was the Portuguese of is very right. clear and and legalized. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's a f- great uh, improvement on what's going on here. That's for sure. Um, you, uh, Sasha Shulgin, just died recently, yes. as you know. Did you know him personally? Yes, I did. Very, very wonderful person. Very warm. Very gentle. Uh, brilliant, of course. 
uh, he and his wife had a lovely relationship, and I didn't have as much contact with him as I did with some of the other people in that movement. But uh, they were also, my relationships with him were always very pleasant. And he was, he always added, shall we say, warmth and humor and modesty to any social situation he was in. Yeah, I, I remember you and I went to a party. Uh, I don't know yes. if you remember. It, it was at his daughter's house, I think. Yes, we did. You're I right. I think it was his birthday or yes. something. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Yeah. That was nice. I I had seen him a few times before that in Barcelona and in Israel at that ecstasy conference I went to. But um yeah, that was an interesting party and it, someone who we were with said that Janis Joplin had lived back there. And that, that there's a little valley oh, north of yeah, San Francisco so. where we were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was, it's funny. It all sort of blends together over time. So as far as personalities in that whole movement, did you know Terrence McKenna at all? Did you ever meet Terrence him? McKenna? Oh, yeah. good heavens, yes. He oh, really? Brilliant. I really was very saddened when he died. We, uh, I actually spent more time with his brother, but that's because... Dennis lived longer than Terrence. Dennis is still alive, oh, I think. Oh, yes, yeah. He just published a book recently. Very recently, last year at a MAPS conference oh, right. in Oakland. Right. Um, I couldn't go for the whole conference, but I went to the day where we, where they had papers on ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And it was a wonderful panorama. I'm just very encouraged by all of the ayahuasca studies that are going on. And uh, Bia Labate, who's coordinating this whole network of researchers, just comes out with one book after another. Yeah. And her latest book on ayahuasca healing, we had a uh, book launch at Saybrook. I was actually able to persuade the powers that be to open up Saybrook for the book launch MAPS kicked in $250, which covered the refreshments. And I said that we would cover the cost of the extra guard from the consciousness fund, so it didn't cost Saybrook any money. And it brought Saybrook a lot of good publicity. Uh, Rick Doblin was one of the speakers, and I was asked to chair the event, which I was delighted to do. And we could only hold some, I think, 60 people in the room because of fire regulations. And so we had reservations, and then we had people on a waiting list. And I was just hoping that there'd be bad weather that night, so I told the waiting list people to show up. The waiting people list people, not all of them, they did show up, and the weather was very, very bad. It was raining outside. And believe it or not, everybody downstairs on the waiting list got in. Oh, that's lucky. Yeah, I didn't see a single empty chair. Oh, that's good. I think we just really got everybody in, and everybody was happy. The party, the book launch, went an hour and a half overtime. People were just so delighted to visit and socialize and meet people. They just wouldn't leave, and there were plenty of refreshments <laughs> thanks to the MAPS donation. Yeah. So it was a, a very, very successful event. That's great. 
That's great. Do you think uh, is the the sort of movement? It feels like the the dam is breaking as far as drug legalization goes and consciousness, the dignity of people to to do what they will with their own consciousness. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's related to the rapid progress in? Um, the same-sex marriage rights and the recognition and respect for homosexuality and, and LGBTQ spectrum people. Are those things related, do you think? Are they? Yes, I think they're related. And it's interesting that there is a fair number of Republicans in back of the marijuana reform movement. And they are of the libertarian wing of the party, right? which has some absolutely crazy ideas about economics, but they certainly are right on target in terms of, uh, in terms of marriage equality, in terms of drug reform, and other policies that give people a little more personal freedom, just as long as it's personal freedom that doesn't hurt anybody else. Right. Yeah. So that's an encouraging note. Um, are, are you are you willing to talk about your personal trajectory in terms of sexuality? Yes. Yeah. Because when I met you, you I mean, I I, uh, I sort of if people ask me about you, I say that you're tr- you're beyond uh, gender norms. But I don't know if that's oh, the way you heavens, think of yourself. That's very flattering of you. <laughs> Don't I wish? <laughs> well, you were married to a woman for a long time. Yes. Uh, were you, did you, do you think of yourself as having been closeted in some way? No, no, I didn't. I, I never felt that way. Anybody, I mean, I didn't have that wild of a sex life ever. I don't have it today. If people ask me questions, I just answer them personally, just <laughs> as long as I don't yeah. have to name names. You have a wilder sex life than I do. Oh, good heavens. (laughs) I remember a couple of years ago, you were in your mid-70s, and you said something about uh, the three lovers that you had at the time. If you added up their age, it didn't match yours. That's right. That's true. That's (laughs) That's a pretty good, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to say that. I still have the same three lovers. (laughs) Now they're they're older. Yeah, their numbers add up faster than yours does. Yeah, that's true. Yes, at least I'm... In for the long haul. When I'm committed to somebody, I'm committed to somebody. If they want to drop out along the way, that's their right and their business, but I stick by them. Well, you're 81 years old and you've got three lovers and you say you don't have a very wild sex life. I think most 81-year-olds would probably beg to differ. (laughs) Don't you think so? Probably so. Probably so. I mean, I, you hear about these guys like, you know, the few guys who are uh, in the nurse or uh, what are they called? The homes, you know, with the, mm-hmm. the and it's 90 percent women and there will be a couple of guys there. Apparently, gonorrhea is spreading all over the place and there's like, uh, you know, very active sexuality. No, they're on. very active. Why don't they produce condoms? Why don't they teach them about safe sex? That's just a scandal that the uh, people are getting sexually infectious. Uh, <laughs> but don't you think at, at, in your 80s you have a right to just say the hell with all that stuff? You know, I like I think in, if, if I survived into my 80s, I'm going to buy another motorcycle. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you get to a certain point where you say, what the hell? You know, what am I saving it for? Well, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I remember you got, how old were you when you got that tattoo in Barcelona? 
That must have been 10 years ago. About 10 years ago. Yes. So you were in your early 70s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember you saying like, well, you know, why not at this point? You know, let's yeah, let's go for it. It was a gift, a Christmas present. I got it for free. <laughs> you did. That's true. You got that for free from uh, Kian and Voodoo gave... Uh, uh, Sidian, uh, the chest tattoo. That's for, right. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's and fun. the octopus tattoo on his arm. Oh, that's Sidian got that. Yes. Oh, that was a he later actually, trip. Um, added a few things to the chest tattoo. Sidian had this black star on his chest, and so it was quite a long session because Voodoo added some things, embellished is the word, this chest tattoo, and then he had a octopus tattoo for Sidian's arm, mm. which uh, Sidian loves because the octopus is his totem animal. Oh. Sidian, by the way, is the grandson of a shaman that you were good friends with in the late 60s yes. named Rolling Thunder. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the it, co-author of our book, The Voice of Rolling Thunder. Exactly, which Stanley spoke about quite a bit on Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. you want to hear more about that, uh, go to the archives of Joe Rogan Experience and look for Stanley Krippner, and you can hear um, quite a bit about Stanley's experiences with Rolling Thunder, who was a very well-known shaman in the late 60s, yes. popular among the alternative community, rock and roll stars, mm-hmm. sort of hippies and movie stars and all that. Yeah, it's very interesting that you're hanging out with his grandson and writing books together and stuff all these years later. So back to your your personal trajectory. Did you feel when you were young, did you... I guess what I'm trying to say is you... I've known you a long time and you've never seemed conflicted or confused about your sexual identity. And I'm just trying to understand because from outside it looks confusing. Right. Because you're not clearly defined. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I'm just wondering, was there a, was there a process of coming to a place of relaxation with that? Or just from the beginning, did you see it as no big deal? And no you just... big deal from the beginning. I think the whole point is I never took sex that seriously. Right. I never was invested in it. Uh, I never... Um, went out of my way to manipulate or pay people for it. Um, I think that I treated sexual partners with respect and concern. I certainly did not uh, in any way um, pressure them or manipulate them. So it was just, uh, shall we say, an easy-come, easy-go situation for me. <laughs> Interesting choice of words. Yes. Uh, was it, I mean, I think that's a, a very wise, I remember at the end of Sex at Dawn, I, there's a line where I say, you know, having written this big book about sex, I, I now want to say that I think we all take sex way too seriously in mm-hmm. this culture, you yes. know. It's not that big a deal. It can be. Just I, the the equivalent that comes to me is music, right? Like you, music can be if it's 
you know, at a funeral of uh, someone you love and it's, you know, in a beautiful, beautiful cathedral and it's a Bach toccata or, you know, there, there can be this transcendent power to music. But it can also just be good blues at a corner bar, and there's nothing humiliating about that. That's right. that's also good music, mm-hmm. and it could be the Rolling Stones in a in a football stadium. I mean, they're all different ways for music to be good and to say like, well, it always has to be this church sacred transcendental experience is ridiculous. But that seems to be what our culture does about sex. Was it? Did you find yourself getting into a lot of trouble having this sort of relaxed, respectful, casual attitude towards sexuality in a society that was taking it far more seriously? I didn't get into trouble in terms of having lawsuits (laughs) or anything like that. Yeah. I think that uh, my actions probably were troublesome to some people— Mm. other than myself. Yeah. But I would say that that was trouble of their own making. That was a result of their belief systems and their expectations right. that I didn't uh, conform to or uh, make the grade at. And also, there's so much hypocrisy um, about sex, and I don't think I've been a hypocrite. It just really galls me when a famous movie star uh, divorces a mate, male or female, because of alleged cheating. And those movie stars have been in sexual potboilers. They've been fostering the sex in the media. And then they scream and yell because their mate is cheating, even though other than that, they might have been having a very, very happy life together. Well, that's rank hypocrisy, and I see that with less famous people, too. Yeah, sure. And that's why I say people are taking sex too seriously, especially sexual monogamy. I have nothing against sexual monogamy, especially in this days of, uh, of AIDS and other diseases, but... Uh, But some people really aren't cut out to be monogamous. Yeah, yeah, I think there may be genetic uh, variation in that, in addition to just, you know, changes over time with age Mm -hmm. and so on. But but, uh, as you know, you're the one who taught me about the sort of, uh, you know, personality aspects of novelty-seeking behavior and things like Mm -hmm. that, which do seem to be passed down through family lines. And Mm -hmm. so it makes perfect sense that there would be that same sort of spectrum. At Saybrook in the fall, we're having a residential conference where students come in from all over the country for a week, and we are doing a seminar on play. And I'm going to devote my part of the seminar, talking about two types of play, playful play and serious play. Mm. And I wish that there were more sex that fell into playful play Mm. and less sex that fell into serious play, where people take it too seriously and Mm. do lawsuits and divorces for consensual sex. I think the, the examples that I'm going to use of serious play are the Mayan ball games. Oh, yeah. Where I've been to some of the ball courts in Honduras and in Mexico, 
where these ball games were played and where the losers were beheaded. Sometimes their heads were used as balls for future ball games. Have now, you, that's pretty serious. That's pretty right? serious. Have you been to Monte Alban? Yes, I have. Yeah, outside of Oaxaca. That's an amazing place. Yes, and I, I think they played there, right? Yes, that was, that's right. Yeah, I uh, I took LSD there one night on a full moon and, and hid over the the side of the hill in the bushes until the guards locked up and left. And then with some friends, we spent the night there by ourselves. You told me about that once. Yeah. That I was... remember that because I re- I've been in Monte Alban and I could just picture where you were. Yeah. That was, that was incredible a crazy place. night. Crazy night. Um, My closest experience to that was seeing the eclipse of the sun in Mexico with a high school class, that's where I got the invitation from Brian Washburn, who you've met. And this, of course, was decades ago. But we found the best place in the world to see the eclipse of the sun. And Brian and another friend of mine and I had scored some peyote. And so we were high on peyote when the eclipse of the sun happened. Wow. And... On top of that, we went up into the hills and watched the eclipse with a little uh, village. And the dogs started to whimper and actually put their paws over their faces when the sun disappeared. It was very, very strange animal behavior. Yeah. And the people in the village had exposed film that they put over their eyes so that their retinas wouldn't get burned by watching the sun. You ever read um, Andrew Weil's accounts of uh, eclipses? He saw a couple in Mexico. Yes, yes, that's in The Marriage book, of the Sun and the Moon. Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, that's yeah, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful book. Um, talking about play, have you read uh, James Carr's um, Finite and Infinite Games? No, what's it about? It's, it might be useful for, for your talk. Be. It's very interesting. Um, and the idea is very simple. He says that most human interactions uh, can be seen as games. And there are two types of games. There are finite games, which is the sort of typical game where the point is to win and end the game. Mm-hmm. And then there are infinite games where the point is to continue play as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And the mistake we make is when we look at, a, for example, a love relationship as a finite game where you're trying to establish dominance. You're trying to win. No, no, it's your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You're the bad one. Yes. You need to change, right? As opposed to an infinite game where the point is let's just keep playing. Let's keep having fun. Mm-hmm. In which case, who gives a shit whose fault it is, right? Let's move on. Yeah. Let's maintain peace. So he looks at all these things, economic uh, relationships, emotional relationships, sexual relationships, and shows how over and over again, we get ourselves into trouble by misunderstanding what type of game it is. Oh, I have to write that down after the podcast. It's yeah, I'll, I'll very, very pertinent. I'll make a note. Talk, yes. Uh, yeah, he's it's a very it's a very slender book, but it's just got that one powerful idea mm-hmm. that he and he gives a few examples and I probably read it 30 years ago, and it's stuck in my head ever since then. Just that way of framing things is very interesting. In sexuality, of course, as I'm sure you know, um, the whole S&M crowd talks about play. 
That's right. You know, there's this kind of play and that kind of play. And it's all about I play with them. I don't play with these people. Tonight mm-hmm. I'm going to play here, play there. It's all seen as play, but very, very rule centric. Very much so. Yeah. It's, it's something I think that people don't, people who have never um, been invited into any of those worlds have a misconception that they think it's this wild, out-of-control scene. No, it's very regimented. It's the opposite. It's sure. super controlled, yeah. yeah. And uh, consent is so important, as you know, which is the difference between a struggle and a game, right? Yes. Play and struggle. So um, I, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I want to keep hitting you with the big big questions sure. here, right? Sure. Uh after, I mean, you've, how many, do you even know how many times you've done ayahuasca and, oh, yeah. and mushrooms and all these things? Sure. You and I have done mushrooms and ayahuasca together. Yes, we have. Um, I've done ayahuasca actually ten times. Ten times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you've, have you ever done a float, a sensory deprivation float? Yes. Did, did you know John Lilly personally? Yes, I you did. did. Yeah, I just did a Cassie and I just did our first float uh, a few months ago, mm. and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So now we've got a up in Portland. We uh, we go regularly, and it's it's a mind altering experience. Oh, I would say. To me, it's kind of like meditation, but my knees don't hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, with meditation, <laughs> my body always hurts. My back hurts. My knees hurt. Yep. And I'm just like, oh, you know, constantly noticing my body. And they say, well, that, you know, it's part of the discipline is to get beyond that. But, man, if I can just float in a, you know, a tank full of salt water it's and not even feel my body. Put your body in the right position and then you don't have to uh, do anything. It just yeah. lets you... Uh, uh, take off from there, and you don't have some Zen guy beating you with a stick to you know no. straighten your spine. Um, anyway, my point is you've you've done a lot of this sort of investigation of you know inner travel or whatever we want to call it. Do you have any? I guess what I'm trying to say is people write to me all the time asking me for guidance. Hmm. I don't know what to tell them. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just barely starting to figure things out myself. <laughs> Now, you're 30 years ahead of me. Do you have anything to tell these these young people who, who write and say, what should I do with my life? What's it all about? What's real? What's illusion? Thank heavens I don't get too much of that. <laughs> well, I'll give them your I email address. Get, no, I used to get more of it than I, get, than I do now. Uh-huh. Thank heavens. And I, I think that I would... Tell them the best advice that I can give you is that the moment is all you have. So make the use, make good use of every moment of your life. At my age, I don't even know if I'm going to wake up alive the next morning. So I don't waste a single day. Well, none of us do, though. That's the crazy thing. I know, and they don't realize it. Right. When the Young younger you are. Young people especially don't realize it. Right. I think they will live forever. Exactly. Is, is that something endemic to our society? Is that, is that a Western thing, do you think? That sense of, of avoidance? No, it's, 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 it's a Western thing, but I know of societies and even segments of American society 
where people don't have that notion they're going to live forever. Right. I mean, I've talked with very, very poor kids who don't think they're going to live past 30. They're going to... Oh, inner city Yeah, they're going to be bumped off by a rival gang or by uh, a uh, uh, misfired bullet or some disease that they can't afford to pay for, etc. Yeah. So, no, not all young kids do have that sense of uh, living forever. So you're, you know, you're, you're 81 years old. You're, do you find yourself thinking about death more often as you get older, just because, you know, no one knows how much time is left? But I would say more often I've always been conscious of death. I've always had the image of myself and other people literally hanging by a string and forces inside or outside of ourself can cut that string at any minute. That's been a recurring image in my life. And it's something that I had in a psychedelic session, but I'd had that even before I'd heard of psychedelics. No, I've always been aware of the fragility of life. And did that enrich your life, do you think? Oh, yes. I mean... Um, I have done a lot of living, and I have not put a lot of things off. When I was a teenager, um, as you know, I lived on a farm, and my parents were very good friends with a couple who came during the summer for a vacation professor and his wife, and I got to know their three kids, and I'm still in touch with their daughter, these years later, and their father, who was a college professor, had this elaborate trip to Europe planned for him and his wife when he retired, and he would go on and on about all the museums they were going to see, all the places they were going to go to, and he only had like 10 years before retirement, and it was something that uh, just sounded incredible. It sounded marvelous. And he, uh, the last time I saw him was at my father's funeral, and a few years after that, he had a heart attack, and he died, like two years before retirement. Yeah. So what happened is that his widow took the money and went to Europe by herself. Good for her. Yeah, it, you know, wasn't what they had planned, but at least she had the spunk to carry out uh, his intent. And I was thinking, look, I would never put off something like that. Yeah. Even though my finances have suffered because of it. (laughs) I hear that. Yeah, but uh, I don't think that... Look, Joy is so scarce in this world. Why postpone joy? Yeah. 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 That sounds like a, an ad for American Express. <laughs> I mean, you wonder if, if everybody really took death seriously, I wonder what would happen to the whole credit industry, you know, because it, it just it, it, it feels like the whole economy is built on this assumption that we're going to go on and on and we on. Did. Yes. And it's just silly. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the, the whole carpe fucking diem thing. Um, one of the few times that I ever 
decided to put something off was when you invited me to join you in Portugal at that transpersonal psychology mm -hmm. conference. And it was the end of the summer. I hadn't worked for a long time. I didn't have any money. It was like, oh, my God, I just can't. This is, I'm, I'm sinking into debt. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up and said, what am I doing? This is this is my friend Stanley. How much how many more of these trips am I going to be able to go on? I'm going to go. And not only am I going to go, I'm going to put my motorcycle on the train to Seville and I'm going to ride my motorcycle to the conference and I'm going to make a big trip of it. Yada, yada, yada. Of course, that's where I met Casilda, right. the love of my life and changed everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're right. Don't don't put it off. Because who knows? Who knows what you're going to find there? I remember reading Carpe Diem in Horace when I was in college. I was introduced to the Greek and Roman classics in my undergraduate days. I loved Horace. Carpe Diem sees the day. That was one of his, well, that's his most famous saying, but he wrote some other marvelous poems and aphorisms also. Yeah. So with continuing in this, this whole uh, afterlife death thing, do you have any sense or any opinions on the hereafter? Well, all I can say is that the case can be made for it. Hmm. Because I know the research, I know the investigators, I have... Um, had personal experiences through mediums with departed loved ones. And it doesn't sound, from our perspective, like they're having as much fun as they did on Earth. Hmm. So, yes, there might be a life after death, and maybe from that perspective, it'll be enjoyable, but that's all the more reason for us to make the most of the day while we're still alive in this dimension. Right. And based upon the, these insights that you have from mediums and the research and so on, is this all spirits linger or is it the people who died violently or tragically, like with the uh, the cases of reincarnation um, What's his name? The guy Ian Stevenson. Ian Stevenson writes. Yeah, about. the most dramatic cases are people who died prematurely. Right. But again, I don't have a simple answer for that. I think that uh, if you look at the human body as a computer, and then look at the spirit as the disk that goes in the computer, you can take the disk out when the computer dies and put it into another computer. Right. And maybe something new will happen, it'll be re reprogrammed. The image that I, I always have is that we're like raindrops. Yes. Right? Individuals. You and I are individual raindrops. And eventually we hit, we, it's rain falling on the ocean. Mm -hmm. And we hit the ocean and then we're, it's not that that rain, it's not that that water ceases to exist, but the drop does. You know? So there's uh, a emerging... Oh, that's that's similar to an image that I often use. What's that? Um, not the raindrops, but the waves. The waves generate foam, 
and those are the individual lives, and uh, that eventually right. returns to the ocean. So the wave itself is the life, yes. or the foam, mm-hmm. or the bubbles. Yes, yeah. I think that's a very nice metaphor. Yeah, yeah right, form, right? Mm-hmm. Substance continues, but form mm-hmm. can come and go and change and so on. I think yeah. that the notion of the social construction of the self is very helpful here, because once we come into the world, the construct that we make of ourselves is the result of what we've inherited and the social forces that impinge upon us. So the big question that I don't have an easy answer to is whether or not there is some sort of essence before social construction and genetics work together to create what we call a person. And sometimes I think, yes, there is an essence. Sometimes I think, um, no, there's no basic essence aside from a collective unconscious. Mm. So I can see both parts of that question And in terms of life after death, the spirit voices that come back and the people who claim to be reincarnated, for all I know, that's a temporary blip. That might not be a permanent identity. Sure. That might be that raindrop popping back for an instant before it rejoins the sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bouncing or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It might be... A splash. It might be an example of play, that uh, the play is there for a certain period of time, but it doesn't go on forever. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That, that could definitely be. And, I mean, the, the whole idea of eternity... Uh, seems absurd, you know, eternity, well, how can I, there are cycles. You ever read the essay by Emerson about circles and how he finds circles everywhere in nature and the eye and the planets and the sun? No, it sounds interesting. It's very interesting. And his whole point is like that the circle is the perfect form. The circle Mm -hmm. is everything is a circle in some sense. And so there's only eternity in the sense that the circle never ends, right? But it is a contained form as well. Well, I I like that notion very much. It's similar to the Hindu creation myths where a cycle eventually ends, but then a new cycle grows out of it. Right. You know, Shiva does his dance and our universe ends, but then there's another big bang and another universe begins. Right, right. So it's breaths coming and going and, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. So eternity that contains uh, discrete events. Yeah, yeah. So are you tired? Do you want to take a break or, or wrap this up? How no, are you feeling? take no break. We're just going to continue until we finish. Take no break. Give, yeah. give no mercy. Yeah. Um, do you have any regrets? Oh, good heavens, yes. Oh, really? Well, that's. I thought you were going to say no. That's good. I cannot believe these people who say, if I lived my life over, I would do it exactly the same way. <laughs> oh, God, I, I would not do it exactly the same way. Absolutely <laughs> really? not. Really? Can you give us some, oh. some sense of what you do differently? 
Because um, you've done very well. I mean, it's been an amazing life. I, I can't think of anyone who's had a more fascinating life than you. Well, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you that. <laughs> but, yes, I can give you numerous examples. Some of the examples involve people whose feelings would be very, very hurt if they ever heard your podcast. But I'll tell you those instances privately. However, I, one of my biggest regrets was when I became interested in the field of consciousness studies. I had an idea for a book, and I would take my research with parapsychology, with hypnosis, with psychedelics, and... would weave them all together into a book called The Consciousness Revolution. And I would put that within a political context in terms of how these shifts in consciousness were going to alter society. And I had the book almost done, save maybe one or two ending chapters, it was going to be for a new publication in Chicago, um, and this was going to be one of their first books. A friend of mine introduced me to the editor. I had a contract. I had everything all set. And then I got married, and we had great difficulty getting the mortgage for the house, and I had to devote all of my energies to getting money together to pay on the energy of the house, for the, for the mortgage of the house. And so... I didn't get that last chapter, those last two chapters in, and so they revoked the contract. Well, that book would have been so timely, and it would have come before any of the other books. It would have come out before Marilyn Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy. Mm. It would have come out, I think, shortly before Charles Tart's book, Altered States of Consciousness, uh, which was an edited book. And technically, I think I could have sued. And I think that they were just a little bit nervous to put out something so radical, and so we're jumping upon the chance upon the point that I was not getting the manuscript in on time to revoke the contract. Right. Yeah, so that was a, 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 a great loss. My life would have been quite different if I would have gotten that book in on time and if they would pu have published it. Gene Houston and Robert Masters loved the book, and they said it was better than books that came out a year or two later. So that was a lost opportunity. Another lost opportunity was the first time I went to Hawaii, um, where, by the way, I met Anatole Rappaport, the father of game theory. Mm. At the University of Hawaii, I was Gardner Murphy's assistant, the distinguished psychologist. I got to know S.I. Hayakawa, who was a visiting professor at the time, and all three of them were doing forums together at the university. It was a marvelous uh, summer, and I looked up a 
architect who had been a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, who, as you know, I had some contact with. And he took me to some of his buildings, and he also took me to Hawaii Kai, where they were selling lots, the swamp land, and Henry Kaiser was going to build a series of housing units there. And I could have bought one of those housing units for X thousand of dollars, which would have been the best investment I would ever have made in my life. I didn't have the money to pull it together. This was even before I went to graduate school. Or no, this was just after I'd gotten out of graduate school, pardon me. And the amount of money that I would have had to put down was about the same amount of money that I was earning per year, so I didn't give it a thought. Mm. I should have begged, borrowed, or stole to get the rest <laughs> of that money, to buy that lot. Yeah, That was something I... I regret. Well, these these are very practical sort of regrets. Yes. You know, I wish I'd finished the chapter or made that investment, or but not. They don't seem to me to be regrets. Oh, they were devastating um, to me. I'd be retired by now. I would have more time to do. I, I want to like do writing. I want to write up some of these little anecdotes that I'm telling you about. Yeah. Put them on my web page, and God only knows when I'll have time to do that. Well, you know, why don't why don't we get you a recorder and you can just tell the stories? I don't write the way that I speak. Hmm. No, people have suggested that before, but whenever I do something that's recorded, I have to rewrite the whole thing before I'm happy with it being published. Right. D although it would be a, a first draft for you and it would probably take less of your time. I mean, I've just started doing this thing, uh, sort of a sub podcast, a, a subcategory of my mm -hmm. podcast, where I'm just telling stories about when I was traveling, things that happened, Wonderful. you know, Alaska, mm -hmm. India, whatever. And um, because for years, I've been the people have been telling me you should write these things down, you should write them, you should write them. And the reason I never have is exactly what you're saying, because it takes time, it takes a lot of time, yeah. and you refine it and you, you know, you're not changing the story, because what happened is what happened, but you're, you're changing the language, you're changing rhythm, you're changing structure in some ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, that takes a long time. So I decided because people seemed interested in hearing these things. And I started feeling bad about talking too much while I was interviewing somebody, mm -hmm. you know, I'd launch into some story of my own um, to just set them up as a separate uh, category. So what I'm hoping is I'll just sort of have those as rough drafts. And then later when I do have time That's to good. actually write it, you know, I'll have the transcript of those and can, at least you've got a leg up, you know, you've recorded something. It's, it's, well, thank you. That's a thought. Yeah. Now, to get back to your original question, what I, one thing I would like to write up is to put my life in the historical contexts because I've been, I might have made a lot of mistakes in my personal life, but I have been right on questions of national policy. Going back to the days when I was in Wisconsin, surrounded by Republicans, and Harry Truman was running for president against Thomas Dewey, and I was very happy when Truman won, 
And, of course, he was being derided by my Republican friends, but Truman is now looked upon as one of the ten greatest American presidents. And then I went to the University of Wisconsin, and Eisenhower was running for president, and I cast my first vote for Eisenhower. There all my friends were Democrats. Mm. But I was right. It was Eisenhower who solidified the gains made by the New Deal and the Fair Deal, with something that a Republican president had to do uh, in order to make those changes permanent. It was Eisenhower who, who helped the infrastructure by building the highway system. Nobody has done much for the infrastructure of the United States since Eisenhower. Yeah. It was Eisenhower who ended the Korean War. No Democrat could have done it on the terms that Eisenhower did. And... Yes, he, Truman made mistakes, Eisenhower made mistakes, but when I look at my political stances over the years, I was right. I was right about Vietnam, I was right about Iraq, I was horrified when... I always say we went into Iraq the worst way, we left Iraq in the worst way. And I saw it happening. So, I can be... I can be proud of my political acumen. Yeah. And as you know from the birthday party, I was a great admirer of Daniel Ellsberg and was a little bit of help in helping him start writing his book Secrets. Yeah. So and, you're I guess you saw this whole thing where uh John Kerry came out and called um Edward Snowden a coward and he should come home and face justice just as, you know, Daniel Ellsberg did and so on and Ellsberg went on TV the next day and said he had admired Kerry in the past, but found him now to be a despicable man for yes. saying that, mm -hmm. for invoking Ellsworth to try to impugn the integrity of Snowden. Mm -hmm. And Ellsworth's point was that this guy can't come back here because this country's nowhere near as free as it was mm -hmm. when I was in trouble. I would have gotten a fair trial. This guy will be you know, sent off like Bradley Manning was into solitary confinement, naked with loud music blaring 24 hours a day. It's when you see the trajectory of the American culture, do do you have a sense? I mean, you've been you were born in the early 30s, 1932. Right. So since it, you have a consciousness of World War Two, right? You were a teenager. Oh, yes. You remember, you remember well. it. Yeah. So you've been consciously observing this culture uh, for a long time. For, we're talking, what, 70-some years that you've yes. been, you know, just consciously watching. Do you see a trajectory? Do you see, is it as bad as it looks to me? Well, it's, what can we say? It's the worst of times, it's the best of times. What's the best part? It's the to best of times in terms of the civil liberties we've been talking about. Right. It's the worst of times in terms of... Uh, Government stooping, government control, um, disastrous foreign policy blunders, uh, intransigence in terms of uh, helping people who are struggling. A report came out just yesterday of the leading industrial nations. The United States has the worst health care. Yeah. Only country without universal health care. Obama cobbled together the Affordable Care Act, which is no paragon, but it's better than nothing, and he's getting hell for it from the Republicans and yeah. most of the American public. 
who have no fucking idea what they're talking about. Yeah, it, it, it seems to me like everything is about transferring the last bit of public wealth into private hands. It, well, it's like jackals around a carcass, and well, you it's, know it's, 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 it's terrible. As you know, the one percent of the population controls thirty percent of the wealth. At least, yeah, I read somewhere five, the top five um, hedge fund managers made as much money as all the kindergarten teachers in the country combined. I can believe it. Yes. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, okay, so the best of times and the worst of times. And, uh, you know, you, when we were talking about regrets, you didn't mention not having children. How do you feel? I know I know you raised children. Your your wife had children when you were married. Um, no, that's enough. Look, I got them through the turbulent 1960s. What was the story about Woodstock? Weren't you supposed to? to take them to Woodstock? And, oh, I took them to Woodstock, yes. Oh, you did take them to Woodstock. Yeah. I remember something about you were driving to Woodstock and you had to turn around. There was some problem back in New York. You had to drive back down, and so you took your daughter up, but then you missed it. Or Am I mixing you up with someone else? To give you a highly sanitized version of that, <laughs> oh, okay. I got tickets to Woodstock for all of the volunteers at Maimonides Medical Center, our dream laboratory. Right. And so we could all go up together and stay with uh, Isaac Abrams, who is a famous artist, and I have an original in my office I'm very proud of. And there were probably eight of us plus my wife, plus my two stepchildren. And it was raining, cats and dogs. We had our rain gear with us. And we got up there in the evening, and we were going to put on our rain gear and go out the next day for the Woodstock Festival, which was an event brought in maybe 400,000 people. It was an incredible number of people who were there. Um, the New York had to declare a state of emergency because the roads were so crowded. And then came the fateful moment when my stepchildren were in a private room rolling joints. <laughs> and my wife went in and saw them rolling joints, and she freaked out. Uh-huh. And she decided that she'd been a failure as a mother, she got in the car and left, and I thought, oh, my God, heaven only knows what she will do. Not that it should have been that much of a surprise for her, but again, knowing, well, the irony is she brought me a cigarette holder for, a cigarette maker for Christmas <laughs> to roll my own marijuana joints, which I never used because I don't smoke marijuana that much. It's ironic. Oh, yeah. And so the next day, I had to go to the bus station and take the bus back to New York. Oh, man. And found out, without going into details, my wife was about to do something drastic. So it's a good thing that I went back. Oh. Yes, it could have been very, See, very bad if I had not You took back. a bus back from Woodstock during the concert. Yes. That must have been a scene, trying to get a bus. Yes, it was a siege. Yes. Oh, yes, my God. Yes. Yeah. Wow, you should yes. write about that. I mean, if you get if you get, to I write. can't write about it because that would get into such personal stuff, and my wife's family would 
Not that they are enamored of me anyway, but to give details about how she freaked out and what she almost did would have uh, mm. uh, would be very offensive to them. Do you? I I, I interviewed this guy in Los Angeles. Um, who's in his 80s. He's a psychotherapist, a very interesting man. His uh, father and his father's business partner wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow. They were lyricists, and they mm. also wrote Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Mm. So uh, really interesting. And he, he told his whole story about growing up and in L.A., and you know, they were quite successful, obviously, and uh, talked a lot about his... Um, what happened was that his mother... Let's see, what was it? His his father, his mother fell in love with his father's best friend, who was his co-writer. And they managed a very loving transition, essentially, from one husband to the other husband. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a beautiful story. Anyway, he, he told a lot of details and about his life. And, and then the next day he called me and he said... Um, you know, I'm worried if, if any of my patients happen to hear this because that would contaminate our therapy. He's an analyst, a psychoanalyst, mm. so they can't know anything about him. He has to be a mm. blank sheet, you know. Mm-hmm. So he said, would you mind just not um, publishing this or, you know, putting this on the Internet um, as long as I'm alive? Oh, good heavens. Yeah, and that gave me an idea for doing um, interviews, like maybe go to hospices and interview people and say, look, is there anything you want to say? This won't be public Uh as long as you're alive. Is there anything you want to say that that you feel free to say in this sense, you know? Um, And I don't know. What do you think of that idea? Do you think? I like the idea very much. Do you think it would be liberating for people? I think it would. Yes. Are there things that you would say from beyond the grave that you wouldn't say here? No, not really. Anything that I would (laughs) say about myself, I'm happy to say right now. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Because in your case, you're—I don't think you've got that division. You don't. Things you're not saying, you're not saying because you don't want to say them. Not that someone somehow is stopping you from mm-hmm. saying them. Yeah, yeah. So you think it's a good idea even though it doesn't apply to you? <sighs> no, it doesn't apply to me, but I think it's a good idea. There will still be some people who will not tell everything because they will be afraid that it might hurt people even if uh, they're yeah. gone. But on the other hand, I think that there are enough details that they could tell that would be liberating to them, that would be sort of a, a service. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something... And it would make a wonderful... If you, they would give you permission to make a, make a wonderful book. Yeah. Hospice stories or something like that. I can see it now. Yeah, yeah, I think and it could And not be. to be published until, you know, all of the people are gone. Yeah. Well, it might be a job for someone younger than me. Maybe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There might be a big surprise. I might be the one who doesn't live to see it. Um, I know we're we're out of time. We've got a, you need to rest and we need to go get some food and, and all that. Um, any anything else you'd like to say to people? There, I get so many emails about our previous podcasts, and mm. people are fascinated by you and, and your experiences and your insights and things. And as I say, I think most of the people who listen to this are probably in their twenties, twenties, early thirties. Mm-hmm. So they're and they're very um, they're very thirsty for some sort of guidance and 
I, I tell them to travel as much as they can. I think that's, that's a big yeah, thing. Yeah, travel certainly gives people a perspective. It did for me. And you knew Joseph Campbell personally. Very well. Right? And yes. I always quote his detribalization idea, you yeah. know, to recognize that you're a part of a tribe and get outside of your tribe and look mm-hmm. back on it and get that perspective. Yeah, that was yeah. a nice metaphor, really. Mm-hmm. Get yeah. outside of your tribe and see what other tribes are doing. I think that... Um, well, I, you know, I, I am always happy to give advice, but it's not very specific advice. And I've already mentioned you have to live your life as if this moment will be your last life and your, your, last, your last moment because you never know when it will be. Look at the people aboard that ill-fated Malaysian airline, for example. Which everyone's forgotten about now. That was number one story for three I weeks, know. and then it just... No, it's back in the news today. They're oh, all looking it? 300 miles. They have a new idea. Oh. 300 miles distant. Anyway. Um, the, uh, I think that another piece of advice I would give is appreciate kindness in terms of being kind to other people and appreciating kindness when it comes to you. Mm. It's appalling that there's not more kindness in our world, much less love. I mean, love, well, so much the better. But if you can't summon up the ability to give love, at least be kind and be gentle and be understanding and be compassionate... Yeah, it's funny the the structures of of the world we live in I think so often force us into such close quarters with the people that we love mm-hmm. that we end up showing them less kindness than we show to strangers on the street. I think you're right. You yes, I mean? sad, very sad. And it's it's not uh it's not an issue of you know, we were talking earlier about people who split up families because someone cheated, quotes, you know. I know, ridiculous things like that. Right? It's structure. It's a stru- It's like, like I get pissed off at the guy sitting in front of me on the airplane all the time, mm-hmm. you know, because he's banging his seat into yeah. my knees. Mm-hmm. And But he's not an asshole. It's the airplane. It's the structure, the design of the airplane mm-hmm. that makes us hate each other like a couple of monkeys in an overcrowded cage. Yeah. And... And I think families are like that, you know, partnerships and, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I are good friends. We spent a lot of time together, but we haven't been we're not cellmates, you know, the way I think a lot of uh, families and partners are essentially cellmates Mm -hmm. and there's no escaping it. And so you turn on each other and you end up (sighs) sad. Yes. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. it's a crazy thing. And then the other piece of advice I would give is don't be too hard on yourself. Mm. Many people are just racked with guilt and recrimination. Yes, I've made mistakes and I don't but I don't lose sleep because of it. I uh I have to realize I'm human. I haven't lived a perfect life. I have not taken advantage of some things I should have taken advantage of, but that's the past. Can't do anything about that. Yeah. I often think one time I asked you if you ever fantasized about something or other. And you said, like having dinner with, you know, Albert Einstein or something. And you said, oh, no, I never fantasize about something that can't possibly happen. 
I don't. No. <laughs> I think that there's something very out of left field about that, but also very wise. Like, why waste your fantasy life on something that you know couldn't possibly happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of which, if you ever meet Salma Hayek again, don't make the mistake you made last time. Ah, uh, there you are. Talk about regrets. <laughs> that was a big mistake, not giving her my email address and not getting contact information so I could visit her ranch like she was going to invite me. No, to. I'm talking about me, that oh, you were going to introduce her to me, too. remember? <laughs> Although she's now happily married. Well, she is now, but she didn't meet she the French billionaire. The she wasn't at the time. That's, That's right. right. She was free and easy. That would have, and, and also, I didn't want to marry her. I just wanted a long weekend. Of course. That know? would have been enough for both of you, sure. <laughs> well, listen, thank you, Stanley. It's always fun to do this. And it's I'm sure, pleasure. I mean, it's always fun just to chat with you, but it's nice to be able to share it with the world, too. Thanks. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.